Why don't you uh, reach for your Bibles and stand for our scripture reading this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We'll be reading Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. We'll be reading the Ten Commandments as Pastor Bruce continues in the series on the Ten Commandments. Today we take a look at the first of the ten, you shall have no other gods before me. On the, if you do not have your Bible with you today, you can grab a pew Bible in front of you and turn it to page 43, and we'll be reading Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You should not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and just ask that you would uh, just be with us, give us the proper perspective, the proper belief on on your commandments, on your law, uh, know them and apply them in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, one of the goals in our uh, series here on the Ten Commandments that we began last Sunday is to uh, actually learn the Ten Commandments. And, uh, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, I don't know how many of us could actually list or recite the Ten Commandments if we had to. And, uh, and so that's one of our goals, is to actually know them, to learn them. And so you'll find in your bulletin a couple of different uh, materials to help you do that. One is insert. And it has all ten commandments listed in this insert. And so you can take this home, put it in your Bible or in your car, and just kind of review what the ten commandments are. And, uh, and then every week we'll provide uh, this little memory card uh, that actually has one commandment each uh, Sunday. And so you'll get a collection of about 11 of these because there's two cards in there today, one for last Sunday for the introduction uh, that we did, and then today for the first, first commandment. And, uh, and so why don't we say the first commandment together? Uh, let's say it out loud together. And, uh, you know, and if you need some help, feel free to look at the uh, poster, which is over here, commandment number one, or even your cards here. And so on the count of three, let's say the first commandment. One, two, three, you shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one that we're going to look at today. But last Sunday, we, uh, we discovered that the Ten Commandments are far from being obsolete. Uh, instead, they're, they're still relevant for us today. And God, we, we kind of figured out, we learned last Sunday, that God knows better than anyone how life works best for His creation, for His people. God knows life is all about relationships. Uh, it's kind of hard to get away from people. kind of hard to get away from relationships with, with God Himself, with one another, and then relationship with uh, stuff in this world. And that's kind of the, if you want to summarize our relationships in this world together, it's the, ver- the ver- hor- vertical relationship with God, the horizontal relationships with people and with the stuff. And God knows life is all about relationships, and he knows that if we get our relationships right, then life works well. Uh, he, he knows that if you get your relationships wrong, though, Life is miserable. Man, life can stink when we mess up our relationship with God, when we have messed up relationships with one another, and even when we have messed up relationships with the stuff in this world. We mess up any one of those three relationships, and all of a sudden life is miserable. We could say it's hell on earth, if you will. And so God gives us the Ten Commandments. 
They're relevant. They're his blueprint, we learned last Sunday, for our behavior in life as well as blessings in life. Now, with all this in mind, let's, let's kind of take a moment here, let's pause, and let's do a little evaluation of each of our lives. Now this, you know, let me just say up front, this isn't an evaluation for you to do for your spouse, okay? You're not doing this on your spouse. We're doing this individually, okay? So don't be doing it on this person you're sitting next to. An evaluation is this. It's there in your notes, coming up on the screen. Which of these three words best describes your life? And you make, well, the word I wanted used isn't up there, Bruce. Can I write it in myself? You know, if you're one of those people that got to write in your own word, that's fine. That's fine. But, you know, try to take these three words, okay? In which one of these three words best describes your life? Maybe it's empty. Maybe if you are really honest with yourself, you're like, yeah, man, right now, the state of my life, when, I, when I'm really honest with me, my life isn't so, so great. It's empty. Maybe you're here, and the word that best describes you is searching. You're seeking, you're searching, and, and you don't know what it is necessarily, but you know there's got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing right now. There's got to be more to life than just waking up on Monday morning, going to work, coming home, going to bed, getting up in the morning on Tuesday, going to work, coming home, going to bed, and doing the same thing and just living for the weekend. There's got to be more. You're searching for that something more. Maybe for you, some of you, you, would, you can really say, man, my life is fulfilled. It is fulfilled. I have found purpose and meaning in my life. It is fulfilled. So I don't know where you're at, but you be honest with your own evaluation. All right? Purpose and meaning, fulfillment, satisfaction. If we're honest, these are all things people desire and search for in life. And people take radical steps to search for these things. Uh, They'll do almost anything, and yet people still feel empty and unfulfilled. Think about it. Money and possessions, they can't satisfy you. Oh, they can make us happy for a little while, but ultimately money and possessions can't satisfy. Uh, In fact, they just leave us wanting more. Relationships alone can't make us happy either. And, oh, that that work, the job thing, where we try to find our identity, well, success at the the job, at work, it, it falls miserably short of bringing us lasting joy and fulfillment in life as well. So, why do so many people today feel empty? Why do so many people today still feel unfulfilled when we here in America have so much stuff and so many opportunities? Why do so many people just merely exist instead of really live as God intended us to? Well, I want to submit to you that the reason why is because we have forgotten and forsaken the very first commandment. We have forgotten and forsaken the very first commandment that God has given to us. Listen, notice this in your notes. The secret to a satisfied life is found in the first commandment, where God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Rightly understood, this first commandment, it's not a narrow restriction meant to stifle our joy. Just the opposite. This is a liberating prescription that nurtures a satisfying relationship with God. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, God declares himself to be the supreme savior, the redeemer. In fact, we're told in the first three verses not to look for deliverance, not to look for fulfillment in anyone or anything. This first commandment is given to us primarily to guard against what we could call spiritual idolatry. He says, you shall not have any other gods before me, which means that nothing is to be placed before God. Now, unfortunately, people have always been prone. And I mean, when I say people, people throughout history have always been prone to idolatry in seeking fulfillment, seeking satisfaction, seeking joy and happiness in other gods, if you will, even after being redeemed. Remember when Moses was on Mount Sinai and God was giving him the Ten Commandments. 
Moses is on Mount Sinai, and the people, the Israelites, are back down at camp. And what are they doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're breaking the very first commandment and the second one as well. They lost patience, and they began to reconceive God according to the felt need of the moment. As Donald McCullough writes in The Trivialization of God, he says, In their idolatry, they refashioned God to fit their expectations and to service their desires. They reduced God to a mere manageable deity. They exchanged the saving God for a trivial God. That is in the essence of what mankind has been doing ever since the beginning of creation. And it's no different today. In idolatry, false gods exist to make us happy. To bring us personal fulfillment and gratification. But the true God of the Bible makes all of life a matter of glorifying Him. A matter of enjoying Him, not glorifying ourselves, and not enjoying ourselves. So the challenge in the very first commandment, And it's a big challenge, but not one that we can't do in the power of God. The challenge is loving God in an age or a culture of idolatry. And in this first commandment, it sets the stage for all the rest of the nine commandments. We could say it this way with this first commandment. It's the foundation commandment. You get this commandment right. And chances are we will be motivated to get all the other commandments right. If we embrace this commandment, we will be more motivated to embrace the rest of the nine commandments. But I promise you this, if we reject this commandment, if we forsake this first one, there's no need to follow the rest of the nine. We we won't. Why? Why would we follow the rest of the nine if we're not following this one? And so understand, this commandment is the most important commandment of them all because it sets the stage for the nine to follow. Now, let's look at this then. Loving God in the age of idolatry. Two, two points here we want to make. Two practical principles, lessons, truths, whatever you want to call them. And that is this, the first one. Number one, the first commandment demands monotheism in our worldview. It demands monotheism in our worldview. Now, immediately, don't let that word scare you. Monotheism, oh no, he's using big words. I've never even heard of this word. We'll take some time and we'll explain it, okay? Monotheism, it's simply this. It's the belief that there is one God and only one God. That's monotheism. As Philip Ryken says in his commentary, God has always been a monotheist. He has only ever believed in one God. So in the first commandment, God takes his stand against the false gods of Egypt and against every other false deity in the past, present, and future. And he says, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, God is saying to us first and foremost, listen, I, I and I alone want to be your one and only God. That's what he's telling the people of Israel as he tells us even now in the 21st century. Now this command, let me tell you, it was radical for the Israelites. It was revolutionary in its impact for the Israelites. They had never heard these words so clearly stated before. I mean, they just assumed that every nation would serve its own deities as they saw fit. But on this issue, God was completely intolerant, and rightfully so. Look what God says in Isaiah 45, 21. And there is what? No other God besides me. A just God, a Savior, there is none besides me. Now, you may be wondering, well, holy cow, I can't believe God would make such a radical statement like that. What gives him the right to make this kind of demand after all? Who does he think he is? He's God. That's who he is. He's God Almighty. As we learned last Sunday, he's the great I Am. Remember how God introduced the commandments in verse 2? Look at it. God reminded the people, I am 
the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. And so what God commanded was based on who he was and what he had done. God has saved his people for his glory, and now he was saying to them, in essence, listen, as the sovereign Lord, it is my right to rule over you. But more than that, I am your very own God. Remember, we learned he's a personal God. He wants to have a relationship with his creation, you and I. We are bound together by my covenant promise, God's saying to him. And I have redeemed you out of the bondage of Egypt. With the ten mighty plagues. Remember those Israelites? Remember the ten mighty plagues in which I have defeated all the other gods of Egypt? Showing that I am the one and only true God. And now he says to them, I'm claiming my right to have all your worship and all your praise. That's kind of what he's saying with this first commandment here. So what does this mean though? What does this mean for us today? in living out this first commandment, that we should have no other gods before God. Well, let me give you three points here of what I think this means for us today in the 21st century in order to keep the first commandment, in order to have a monotheistic worldview, if you will. Number one, it means saying no to atheism. It means saying no to atheism. And again, you're like, whoa, what is atheism? I've heard that word before, but not exactly sure what it means. It's, it's, atheism is simply the active belief that no God exists beyond the universe. In an atheistic worldview, human beings are all alone in this gargantuan universe of ours. How depressing of a thought is that? But God set the record straight when he said, I am the Lord, your God. You know, the reality is when humanity dethrones God, men and women usually enthrone themselves instead. John Calvin, way back, he wrote an article, a book, and he made the case in his writings, that because we're all made in the image of God, that the heart cries out for some object of worship. The only question is, what or whom will we worship? In his book, Idols for Destruction, Herbert Schlossberg says, Western society, in turning away from the Christian faith, has turned to other things. This process is commonly called secularization, but that conveys only the negative aspect. The word connotes the turning away from the, word, from the worship of God while ignoring the fact that some other deity is being turned to in his place. In other words, here's what he's saying. Whenever the one and only true God is absent in an individual's life, you can be sure that some other God will rush in to take his place. Understand, atheists, they have their gods. Whether they are nature, whether their god is materialism, whether their gods are self-appeasing moralism, or even themselves, atheists have their gods. And although we as believers, I don't think there's anyone here that would stand up and say, I'm a self-proclaiming atheist, all right? Believers reject the idea of atheism. But listen to me, we struggle, though, with what we could call practical atheism, which is shriveling the hearts and clouding the minds of many people who profess to be Christians. Here's what I mean by that. It's in our head, you may believe in God's existence, but in our heart, it's empty of affection for God. God's direction, God's guidance, God's wisdom is sought only in emergency situations in our life. Only when we come into trials and dire circumstances, then do we come to church or then do we cry out to God, help me, save me. Change my circumstances around me. It's as one author says, this is the break glass in case of emergency deity. See, in this... And and listen, we struggle with this, even as Christians. 
God is rarely thanked, he's rarely praised, but he's often petitioned to divulge material blessings on our behalf. The pursuit of happiness is supreme, but the pursuit of holiness is barely an afterthought. And we struggle with this. We're practical atheists, even though we would deny being, believing in atheism. So what does all this mean, though, for us now? Well, it means atheism and practical atheism have the same end result. God is dethroned and self is enthroned. The difference is that atheists are consistent with their beliefs and practices. But practical atheists wallow in hypocrisy. Claiming to be a follower of Christ, but really, we are nothing more than followers of self. Both are a violation of the first commandment, since God is excluded from the everyday lives of the people he loves. That's atheism, impractical atheism. Number two, though, Keeping the first commandment not only means saying no to atheism, but it means saying no to deism, to deism. And again, what is deism? Well, deism is the belief that God made the world. God is the creator. He made the world. But God does not interfere with his creation. That's deism. In fact, in their worldview, God is distant. In deism's worldview, God, he doesn't care about his creation. He's not interested in initiating a relationship with, well, after all, little people like us. He's God, and we're way down here. He doesn't care about us, therefore he doesn't intervene on our behalf. Thomas Jefferson, our third president, was a staunch deist. Um, But God denounced deism when he comes along in verse 2, and he says, listen, I am the Lord your God, And then notice the next two phrases. Who does what? Who did what? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage? Now, does that sound like a God who doesn't care? Does that sound like a God who's distant and is not redeeming his people and intervening on their behalf? Here we see a loving father who is concerned enough to intervene in the world in which his children need his help. God is the almighty creator who does not abandon his people, but exercises his mercy and his grace by miraculously coming to their aid in deliverance. Now, again, I don't, I, you know, perhaps there's somebody here this morning that would say, oh, I, I, I believe in deism. I don't think there probably is not too many here. As believers in Jesus Christ, again, we would reject the belief of deism. But I would submit to you that we must be careful not to surrender to functional deism. You say, what's that? What what do you mean? Well, here's what I mean by that. Functional deism basically says, God, he's not interested in my life. If, If you knew my past, if you knew what I've done, God wouldn't be interested in me. I, I'm just so insignificant. I'm just a little old me in this big old world. God's not interested in me. He doesn't care enough about me. And therefore, God, God's not going to intervene in my life on my behalf. And the result of that thinking is we end up living life on our own, we end up making decisions all on our own apart from God's word, God's wisdom, God's power. We're functional deists. We're no different. And although God doesn't exist to solve all our petty whims and grant all our trivial wishes, listen, he can and he does guide personally and he intervenes miraculously in his people's lives. Amen? Aren't you thankful for that? That God cares enough to redeem you out of the bondage of sin. He intervened with the most 
important thing that he could for humanity. He intervened with his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. What do you think we celebrate Christmas for? That is the creator intervening into humanity with his son, Jesus Christ, to be born in this world so that he could die on a cross and give us an opportunity to believe in him so that we could be redeemed and reconciled to God Almighty. Talk about a God who cares, a God who loves, a God who intervenes on our behalf. What God does that? Atheism, deism. What, what hopeless belief systems and worldviews those two are. But there's a third one, folks, too. And this third one, oh, it is, it is swept across Western civilization in America, and unfortunately, it has swept up into the culture of Christianity as well. If we're going to keep the first commandment, it also means saying no to polytheism. Polytheism. And again, you're going, man, Bruce, you're using all these big words, theism, theism, theism. Hang with me. Hang with me, because these are important words here. Polytheism is simply the worship of many gods. It promotes gods of all shapes and sizes, whatever you can imagine, who manipulate people and who can be manipulated by people. Polytheism was rampant in the days of the Israelites, and the Egyptians were unsurpassed. There were gods and goddesses for everything in the ancient world. I mean, they worshipped the gods of sun and rain, the gods of fields and rivers, the gods of war and peace, the goddess of fertility, you name it, they had a god for it. And over the years of bondage, remember the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. And gradually, the Israelites began to give in to the temptation to worship all these other gods as well. Ezekiel 20, verses 7 and 8 says, God told them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you. And do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. And then he says it again, I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. This is one reason why God took the trouble to defeat the, all the Egyptian gods. You ever wonder, as you look, watch Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, and they go through the Ten Plagues, and what's the purpose of all that? Listen, God had a reason for that. To show them, to show the Israelites, as well as Pharaoh and the Egyptians, that he and he alone is worthy of worship. That was the primary reason God did all that, to show and display his power, his glory, above the Egyptian gods. What's interesting is survey after survey shows that here in America, most people believe in God. Get that. But here's the problem. He's just one God of many gods we worship here in America. While we no longer worship the so-called ancient gods of the past, make no mistake, polytheism is alive and thriving in our culture today. J.I. Packer, who is a great theologian and commentary, and he writes in his book, Keeping the Ten Commandments, and he says it so well. He says, for us, there are still the great gods... And then he lists three of them. Sex, shekel, and stomach. And the other enslaving trio, pleasure, possessions, and position. And then he goes on and says, football, the firm, and the family are also gods for some. And indeed, the list of other gods is endless. For anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his or her god. I couldn't say it any better than that. But God says, so loud and clear to us in the first commandment, I am to be your one and only God. So the first commandment demands monotheism. Mono meaning one. 
theism, God, in our worldview. But what does this mean to worship, to love God in an age of idolatry? What does this mean to worship and love one God and only one God? And that is the great I am God. Well, that brings us to point number two, truth number two. And that is the first commandment demands loyalty in our worship. It demands loyalty in our worship. Now, one of the first first lessons that parents try to teach their kids, and if if you're a parent or been a parent, then you you can relate to this. One of the first lessons parents try to teach their kids is, is how to share. You guys know what I'm talking about? Listen, my kid, my oldest boy right here is 13. I have another boy who's age nine. You guys know him, Jack and Tyler. And after 13 years, we're still trying to teach them the importance of sharing. Anybody else identify with me on that? It's a never-ending job description, job lesson of teaching your kids how to share. I mean, we're forever reminding our kids to share their space, share their toys, share their food. It seems we as parents are constantly telling our kids, you have to share. Just share. Come on, we're a family. But as important as it is to share, it is also important to realize that some things, listen to me, are not meant to be shared. For example, a bite-sized candy bar that you get at Easter, trunk or treat, Halloween. Those are not meant to be shared. Amen. Thank you, Bill. (laughs) Bite-sized candy bar. Um, A unicycle is not meant to be shared. My, My oldest boy's. He has one of his friends in our neighborhood. He has a unicycle. And he rides that thing up and down our street. And he's actually pretty good at it. Tyler's tried to get on it and ride. And, well, he's not very good at it. <laughs> but can you imagine two people trying to ride a unicycle at the same time? I mean, you, you have to go to Branson and watch Shanghai Circus to see something like that. Okay. Um, you know, confidential information is not meant to be shared. Or take even a more serious example, the sexual love between a husband and wife is not meant to be shared. Listen, these things were never intended to be shared with someone else. In fact, in order to be used properly, these things things have to be kept exclusive. It's what protects the trust in a marriage relationship. So if some things were never meant to be shared, then it's not surprising to learn that there are times when even God refuses to share. God is a loving God, folks. We learned this last Sunday. He is a loving God who loves to pour out His mercy and grace. He loves to share with His people His grace and mercy. But there are some things He will not share. You say, why? Because as we will see next Sunday in Exodus 20, verse 5, God is a jealous God. And we will see next Sunday that we think of that only in the negative, but that is also a word that can be used in the positive. I'm jealous of my wife's love. She's jealous of mine. We'll talk about that a little more, but notice this. Because God is a jealous God, therefore, he will not share his glory. He will not share his worship with any other God. And God says to us, I am the one and only God. And since I am the one and only God, I refuse to share my glory in worship with anyone or anything else. Listen, God will not share the stage with any other performers. He dances alone. You won't catch him on Dances with the Stars or whatever the show's called. Ain't going to happen. He refuses to have any colleagues and co-workers that are his equal. God says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Listen, God doesn't just lay claim to one part of our life. 
And this is how we think of God so many times as believers even. We think, all right, we, we, we cut our life up and we think of it as a pie. And in a pie, what do we do? We have all these slices. And so we think of our life as a pie, and we'll give a little slice of my life to God. And that's where God reigns and rules in our life. This little slice of the pie. But God, don't you dare interfere with all the other slices of my life. God doesn't operate like that. He demands that we dedicate the whole pie to Him. He demands that we dedicate all we are and all we have to His glory. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. So what does that mean exactly? Especially that last phrase, before me. Well, notice it in your notes here. Before me does not mean that it is permissible to worship other gods so long as we put God first. Which is how most Christians think of this. When God says before me, listen, he's not trying to tell us where he falls in the rankings with other gods. It's not that he has a higher batting average, and so on the team he gets to bat cleanup. All right? He's not Eric, Eric Hosmer who just got called up because he's batting for something in the minor leagues, and so now he, he's in the rankings, he's moving up. No, 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 that's not the way we should think about it. God is not saying, I must be the highest of all your other gods. You must have none other before me. So if God's not saying that, then what exactly is he saying? What does he mean here? Well, the words before me can also be translated before my face. Before my face. And sometimes that phrase is used in the spatial sense. In that case, the first commandment would mean something like this. You shall have no other gods in front of me or in my presence. No other gods in my presence, God says. Huh. In my presence. And if we understand some of the attributes of God, well, God is, he's everywhere, isn't he? It really means then we're not to worship false gods anywhere because God is everywhere by spirit at any time. Think about it. Anytime we serve other gods, we are doing so in the very presence of God. You can picture it like this. It's like putting something in someone's face. You ever try to get back at somebody and what do you want to do? You want to rub it in their face, right? You want to make sure they see it and they know it. In other words, setting up a false idol, setting up a false god, having another god, listen, it's like insulting God to his face. It is, it is rubbing it in his face because he's everywhere. He knows what's going on. Here's the point. When it comes to worshiping God, it's all or it's nothing. It's that simple. When God demands us to reject false gods, he is also commanding us to choose him as the one true God, enthroning him as the one and only God of our lives. So the first commandment tells us whom to worship, but it also tells us whom not to worship. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, which brings us to an all-important question. Uh, what happens when I don't keep this commandment? What happens when I break this first commandment? That's a great question. Are there consequences? Are there any residual results? If I break this first commandment, does it impact my life in any way? Well, notice this in your notes. Here's what happens. We discover that other gods, listen, folks, they don't satisfy and they can't save. Other gods don't satisfy and they can't save. 
There's a story about what happens when we break the first commandment. It's the story of the tragic downfall of a great king. He was one of the greatest kings in the ancient world. Let me tell you, this king was powerful. He crushed his enemies. He expanded his kingdom from the mountains to the sea. He was also one of the richest kings. His palace was filled with gold, not silver, because silver was not good enough. The name of this rich and powerful king was Solomon. And the most remarkable thing about King Solomon was that he possessed, get this, true spiritual wisdom. True spiritual wisdom. In fact, he was recognized as the wisest man in the ancient world. Listen, and just to grapple with this, there has never been a man more greatly blessed by God than King Solomon. He had everything you and I could ever want in life, including the opportunity to do great things for God. If only, if only, King Solomon had kept the first commandment. It was so simple. God laid it out before him, and God said, Solomon, all you have to do is give me the glory. All you have to do is give me the glory, and I will establish your royal throne forever. I will bless you beyond what you can ever imagine. It was so simple. All he had to do was keep this commandment. But sadly, King Solomon failed to keep God's law. He served other gods. So how did God respond to him? Well, in 1 Kings 11, 9 through 11, tells us, it says, the Lord was angry with Solomon. Folks, listen to me. He still gets angry with you and I when we serve other gods. And then God explains why. Because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will certainly tear the kingdom from you. Now, most people are surprised by what happened to Solomon. I mean, after all, how could a man who was so wise yet be so stupid? You ever ask that question about some people? You ever ask it about yourself? And yet, if we look at Solomon's life carefully, we see that his heart started to turn away from God long before he ever bowed down in front of any idols. Solomon started out great. He started well. But gradually, he drifted away until finally he was worshiping completely different gods. And the same thing happens to so many Christians today. And although we never intend to break the first commandment, we don't set out is that is our goal but our hearts are lured away by the temptation to follow other gods and the false promise that they will bring to our life now what's so tragic about king solomon is that he ended up serving the very gods get this that he once rejected the gods of money power and sex And in the end, Solomon discovered, to his own dismay, just how empty life is for those who break the first commandment. In fact, later when Solomon was looking back on his life, and he wrote about it in the book of Ecclesiastes. And you can go to Ecclesiastes chapter uh, 2, verse 10, and he says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart. I kept my heart from no pleasure. What was the result of all this? What was Solomon's? Was he satisfied? Did Solomon get what he wanted in the end? Was it worth it for him? And the answer is no. Listen, his pursuit of power, of pleasure and prosperity led him into emptiness and despair. Look what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes. I think this is in your notes here. It says, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was what? Meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So I what? I mean, that's pretty strong words, isn't it? I hated life. You know anybody like that in this world today? Folks that are all around us. There are so many people out there that just, they hate their life. They hate life in general. Because they are so empty and unfulfilled. 
They're no different than Solomon. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. This is what happens when we break the first commandment. We discover for ourselves that other gods don't satisfy and they can't save. As Elizabeth Browning wrote in a poem called Idols, how weak the gods of this world are, and weaker yet, their worship made me. The story of Solomon, listen to me, it is a warning to every one of us here this morning who has made the decision to follow God, but is coming gradually under the influence of other gods. Now, most people, we just assume idolatry is a thing of the past, right? That's not around today. I mean, after all, who, who would bow down to a figure made of wood or stone? I don't have anything set up in my house. But the truth is that the spirit of Solomon is alive and well today. And in many cases, we serve the same gods that Solomon served, money, sex, and power. So let me give you two tests for idolatry. How, how we can identify our own private idolatries. Number one is the love test. The love test. Who or what do you love? We could ask the same question a different way. What do you desire? When your mind is free to roam on the way to work or when you're at laying out, down in bed, what do you think about? What do you get excited about? The love test. Number two, a second test is the trust test. Who or what do you trust in life? Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Thomas Watson said, to trust in anything more than God is to make that a God. The truth is, folks, we are tempted to love and trust many things other than God. I love what Matthew Henry, the great Puritan, wrote in his commentary. He says this, pride makes a God of self. Covetousness makes a God of money. Sensuality makes a God of the belly. Whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or dependent on, more than God, that is what we make a God of. And behind all these idols is the God or goddess of self, which is the supreme deity of our culture today. Listen, as Christians, we are as prone to this kind of false worship as anyone else. We say, oh, we say it. We will come to church and we will, and if we don't say it verbally, we'll try to make people think we say it, that we serve God, we love God, but we spend most of our time thinking about our own needs, our own plans, our own problems, and our own desires. We have discovered, as Oscar Wilde famously wrote, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. We are in love with ourselves. We love ourselves, we trust only ourselves, to the exclusion of loving God and trusting Him ultimately. You see, we must understand that when it comes to this commandment, this first commandment, there is no middle ground. There are only two categories of people in this world. Two and only two. You are either a true worshiper of the one and only true God, or you are a true idolater. For we all have a God. So what can deliver us from this? What can deliver us from the worship of all other gods? It's so easy, and yet it's so hard sometimes. Fall in love with God. Fall deeply and passionately in love with God by trusting in His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, the only thing that can tear our hearts away from all our other affections is true love for God. And the only thing that can replace all other things we trust is a total faith commitment to Jesus Christ. Moses told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, look at it in your notes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. C.S. Lewis, I'm sure some of you have heard of that name. He once said, our problem in life is not that we love things too much, but that we don't love God enough. As Michael Moriarty aptly says in his book, The Perfect Ten, perhaps the reason, get this, 
Perhaps the reason why so many Christians have a love affair with worldly things is because they do not have one with God. Our personal agendas and self-indulgence suffocate our love for God. Meager love, he says, is our greatest enemy. How's your love relationship with God? With his son, Jesus Christ. No wonder Jesus says to us today now in the New Testament, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: 37, you shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Listen, folks. Do you want to live a satisfied life? Do you want to live a life that has purpose and meaning and fulfillment? Satisfaction that goes beyond your job that you work at here Monday through Friday. A satisfaction that goes beyond what your marriage partner can give to you. Do you want a satisfaction that goes beyond what the things and stuff of this world has to offer? Fall in love with God. You're saying, that's so simple, Bruce. I know it is. God's not complicated. That's what I love about God. He makes things easy for us. He just says, fall in love with me. And if you will fall in love with me, and me only, you will discover the secret to a satisfied life is found in the first commandment. So how's your love relationship? How's your affair, if you will, with God Almighty? Now, I'll be honest with you. This is something I need to look inward in my own heart and evaluate. Because we all kind of like this, some of us were whoo, for long stretches of time. Some of us, you know, we ride here. And so we all, we all need to look in our hearts and evaluate. And we're going to do that. Praise team's going to come. They're going to sing a chorus. And this is our time to do that. It's the time to go to God and say, God, search me out. Reveal to me. Where am I at in my, your, my relationship with you? So as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, and as the praise team comes and they sing, and if God is showing you that you have other gods in your life, that your loyalty has not been all that great, listen, the thing to do is come to God now, is to come to the cross and seek his forgiveness. Confess your sin. And let him cleanse you and make you righteous all over again. Recommit your love to God. And then begin to live it out with being in his word, surrounding yourself with his people, and living for him out in the world. Will you examine your heart and do what is necessary while the praise team sings?